All right, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Andrew McKean. He's the hunting and conservation editor for Outdoor Life. Thanks for being on here. Well, thanks for having me. This is pretty fun. So uh, there was a somewhat troubling survey that found the public approval for hunting has dropped to 77%, and the disapproval of hunting has risen to 17%. Uh, and you wrote about this uh, last month, and you also did a podcast. It's, I think, it's the July 7th uh, episode of the Outdoor Life podcast. So um, people can listen to that as like a complimentary um, um, listener to educate themselves. But can you give me some kind of a brief overview of uh, who did the survey, kind of what it means, and we can go from there? Yeah, you bet. Um a couple of things that are, I think, worth talking about right up front, and that is this is a long-term survey. It's done about, oh, every third year. It's not it's not regular, but it's not irregular either. Basically, um, surveyors try to find somebody to fund it, and then they mm-hmm. kick it out with, with that kind of frequency. So the reason I mention that is it's, I think it's 27 or 30 years old, but it's, it's in its third decade of pretty regular updates of taking the, the pulse of American Attitudes toward hunting and fishing. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, the kind of alarming thing, or at least noteworthy thing about this particular survey is it's it showed a, a pretty significant drop in um, support or favorable uh, attitudes towards hunting and fishing and trapping and recreational shooting, kind of the whole gamut of everything that we kind of revolve our lives around for the first time uh, in that 30-year survey. There have been little blips and kind of some sort of, I would say like, corrugated waves of that attitude um, previously, but this is the first time it really showed an across-the-board drop. And then, as you mentioned, too, um, so the favorability metric is based on, are, do you strongly favor or do you slightly favor hunting and fishing? So that's kind of how it's phrased. The reverse of that is, do you strongly um, disagree or mildly disagree with hunting? And, and And to me, the more noteworthy part of the survey is, this was the first time we've registered some pretty significant unfavorability when it comes to what we do. Um, and I just think that's worth paying attention to as sort of a leading indicator of, you know, uh, attitudes that can manifest themselves at ballot boxes or in elections and, and, and influence really legislatively the things that we love to do. Yeah. yeah there's a big difference between indifference towards hunting, which I think a lot of people are still, um, and actively against hunting. And that's like you said, uh, that will show up more at ballot boxes and things where people might be more determined to do something about it. And rather than I don't hunt, but I don't, I, I get it. It's becoming maybe more, <clears throat> I don't hunt and you shouldn't be able to either. And that's, that's kind of potentially alarming. Um, <clears throat> there's, this isn't the, the highest that it's been. I, I think it was, uh, the highest disapproval rating was somewhere in the nineties. Is that yeah, I'm actually looking at this right now. The highest disapproval, it's about a 70-page report, so i got to kind of riff <laughs> through it a little bit. Um, the highest disapproval, if you want to look at it that way, was, yeah, 19, uh, actually 2003, mm-hmm. we had 74% approval. Mm-hmm. And actually the very first year, that the at least in this modern iteration, in 1995, we had 73%. So, um in the sense of like statistical uh, um, median, you know, or, or at least I don't want to get too statistical about it, but yeah, we've been in worse shape in the past mm-hmm. for sure. Does it feel, that, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, the interesting thing is there's so been so 
I, we are terrified of this as a community. Like, right, man, the only reason we can do what we do is because we've got public support for it, or as you say, public indifference to it that is not manifested in, in disapproval. And we have poured so much attention into this, you know, kind of like within the federal policy level arenas, sometimes the state, but just sort of as a community, like trying to uh, create or sort of um, have a reflected glow of virtue around what we do that we think, I think, uh, brings everybody along with us. And the, the thing I think that's most noteworthy about this particular decline, which was four points off the previous uh, survey, is that maybe those things aren't really working as well as we think that they're working. Yeah. It, it seems so obvious in the modern culture of um, reducing your carbon footprint, of not participating in the beef industry, of having organic free range, of um, you know all those sort of things. It seems like hunting would just be an obvious thing it would it, it, it would be accepted uh, on, on a large scale because it seems to be in line with a lot of these other things that we're looking at so it's interesting that uh, that we have seen this decline um, do you think it's going to be a little different to try to turn the tide because in the era of social media we're dealing with social media and algorithms which maybe in the 90s you know people didn't really know and then over time uh, things kind of went back in our favor but with so much active anti-hunting rhetoric out there. Do you think it might be a little more difficult to recover? Yeah, I think that's actually one of the more worrisome parts of this is um, the echo effect of of not really being able, as, as our community of hunters and fishers and shooters and trappers, to try to even reach somebody who may not have this in their in their feed or in their sort of like uh, um, bandwidth of, of content. And I said in the out, outdoor life podcast, I think it bears repeating here a little bit that I think this is a indicator of a little bit of the, of the siloing of our lives of people who have really all of the things that you talked about, sort of the virtuous parts of hunting and fishing. We can't even start to communicate those because people are shut off from the entire conversation you know, as a communicator, I, one of the joys of my life has been to like reach across these sort of resistance bands and reach people who might not have any uh, indication of of our community and our sort of identities and kind of see them wake up a little bit and vice versa. I love to be also influenced by people who I just never met before. I think we're losing that ability to, uh, to your point with uh, with social media and with these sort of algorithms that feed the, feed us things that we have a demonstrated interest in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things as a teacher I saw um, <clears throat> during COVID was an incredibly healthy habits that happened between families um, on Fridays when we didn't have school. We had optional office hours, and kids would take that time and they'd go hunting, either with themselves, uh, solo hunts, or with friends or with family. And it was such an important bonding opportunity uh, for the families, you know, and that wasn't possible in a lot of areas. And so people didn't get this reconnection to the land or, you know, go kayak fishing and, and halibut fishing and things like that. Um, if you're in a rural area, a lot of people talk about how kind of nice it was to ha be forced back to those sort of relationships and that sort of self-sufficiency. But a lot of these, these urban areas, they didn't have that. Um, and they were forced more to, to find purpose online and, 
like you said, with those silos or those echo chambers, that it's tough to reach those people. Yeah, but one of the things that has really mystified me about this particular survey is it it should be capturing that um, that COVID era um, re interest in authentic experiences and in outdoor experiences and, and kind of this, I would say a real um, American land ethic that people maybe had forgotten that they, they had from a, you know, an ancestor or like a relative who had left the farm a couple of generations ago. And I think that was a real thing that we saw with, with people kind of rediscovering, you know, the purpose of great granddad's shotgun in the closet and all of those sorts of things. And, and, and that, that really scratched, I'm scratching my head about that. Why we haven't seen a little bit of a larger reservoir of public support based on, even if it was a couple of years of that rediscovery and then the adjacent sort of relationships and, 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 um, and support that grows out of that. I, I don't know why we haven't seen that. And in fact, um, when you kind of scratch the surface of some of the survey answers, it's really odd. And again, kind of disorienting to see some of the reasons that people don't support hunting um, at a disproportionate level. And that is like for organic food and for like um, authentic experiences and those things that I thought were really fueling a lot of that reinterest in, in hunting and outdoor recreation around COVID. Mm -hmm. Do you think it, it, it was a, a very brief peak because it looks like uh, right around, I don't know when the last time it, it was done, but maybe it lines up at 81% approval around 2021-ish or halfway through 2020. So was that the peak? Yeah. Was it just like a little bit of a bump? And then since then, things have just returned to or or, or turned the tide already? Was it, was it just a, a minuscule little bump? course you, you, you don't know I mean, this is all just theoretical it is theoretical but i think there's something to that you know the gestation period for these surveys is about a half a year mm. you know it just takes that long to kind of you know ramp them up do all of the all of the pretty intensive um you know outreach that that then is synthesized in these things and so i think you're right that 81 percent approval which was actually the highest it had ever been recorded in the history of the survey probably captured a little bit of that peak that you're talking about um also, if you look at the disapproval from that um, previous one, uh, survey, it was 12% disapproval. This one is now 17%. So um, I, I think you're on, I think you're onto something, but um, when I look at the highest disapproval um, reasons given by a survey respondents, this won't surprise anybody is trophy hunting. There's 48% disapproval just popularly about that. But for the challenge, there's a 38% public disapproval of that, which, I mean, that 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 one mystifies me. For the sport is also is right up there or right down there, I guess I might say, in terms of disapproval. But the other like leading disapprovals are to get organic meat, which I thought was a, uh, a big um, revelation of the pandemic to protect property and to get locally sourced food or all things that have relatively high disapproval ratings come on people <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well it's it's interesting you, you talked about terminology a little bit and kind of the old reference to hunting was trophy hunting and it seems like we've stepped way away from that and it's a lot more diy it's a lot more experience it's a lot more 
you know, regular people not doing high fenced hunts. And that's what the, that's what the market is. You know, you see the explosion of, of shows, uh, YouTube channels and content made by ordinary people who have other jobs who are going out there and hunting. So it seems like this should be like a, a modern golden era of it. Cause we've gotten away from the trophy hunting rhetoric, but now it's like, it seems like every other word that you use that's not trophy can be attacked, right? Like, oh, I love hunting because it's fun. Like, well, you love killing animals. That's fun to you. It's like, well, like fun is the most available and the easiest word to use, but it's not like going on a carnival ride type fun. You know, it's not, you know, it's just a different sort of thing, but it seems like there's a lot of nitpicking going on and we're on the defensive a lot with any word we use, even though we've changed our, our, our terminology uh, in a much more beneficial way. Oh, you're so right. In fact, that's, again, as you know, somebody who sort of brokers in words, that's, that's pretty troubling to me because everything can sort of be um, electrified. Every term can be somehow sort of weaponized. I, I do, though, like um, one artifact of that, and that is trophy hunting. Um, even when people say, well, I'm not trophy, I'm not hunting for a trophy animal, I'm hunting for a trophy experience. I think still sort of rubs people the wrong way. I do like the fact that we are increasingly call it selective. We're selectively hunting, which indicates a little bit more that we're not just going out there and just sort of, you know, spray painting the landscape with lead in the hopes that we get anything like that. We actually do have um, a sort of self-imposed limitations on what we do. And I think that's healthy. Yeah. At least I hope it is. We'll have to see what the next survey is. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back uh, to the kind of the beginnings. Who who mentored you and how did you get your initial definition of, of fishing and hunting? As it Was it early age um, or late onset? Uh, how, how did you initially define hunting? A little bit of both. I grew up um, on a farm in North Missouri. I mean, I don't remember buying a deer license for the entirety of my <laughs> childhood. I mean, because it just wasn't, I'm sure it was required, but we hunted our own place. And, um, and actually we didn't have a ton of deer. Now when I, I think about where I grew up, it's like the epicenter of trophy whitetails. <laughs> I, I stress that term, like all the land that I used to hunt is now leased up by people who don't live there. And, but I grew up as a small game hunter, as a squirrel and rabbit hunter and, you know, fishing for bluegill and bass in farm ponds. Um, I'm sure I had mentors. My dad was a rifleman who hated fishing and shotguns. Mm. And somehow I became an upland bird hunter and I love fishing. Um, so I think some of it was just osmosis. I grew up with 10 boys. There was 13 of us from first grade through eighth grade when we ended up going to the county high school. But those 10 boys, um, we all were farm kids. We lived, we didn't live within sight of each other, but you know, we would ride the bus together and talk about what we had done that previous weekend and they all had that commonality of like we learned sort of together but also remotely mm -hmm. um but i don't i never saw myself in my current role um as a kid i figured i would come back to the farm and farm or do something um maybe teach you're a pretty good example of you know <laughs> where that can take you yeah uh, but it really was getting out of college and rediscovering my love of hunting and fishing and realizing that there was actually um, people who made a living off of writing about it and communicating their experience. And, and for me, that was sort of the golden age of my sort of uh, awareness of, of taking that very specific local knowledge of how to hunt squirrels and how to hunt rabbits and expanding that to how to hunt elk and how to hunt turkeys mm -hmm. kind of by myself. I would definitely find people who I felt like 
um, knew more than me, but I was also intimidated by their knowledge sometimes. Oh, yeah. I, think I think it's a really common thing about, especially mid-20s men who don't want to be vulnerable or uh, admit that they don't know something. So I learned a lot of bad habits all by myself because I was too embarrassed to ask somebody. (laughs) And actually, I try to recall that mindset when I encounter people who I recognize are in that same sort of growth curve that I was then Um, and just try to make knowledge and gear as accessible as possible. Yeah, that self-imposed barrier of entry is uh, is a tough thing. It's embarrassing to admit a little bit that I grew up on Prince of Wales Island, which is famous for for black bear and for uh, uh, black-tailed deer. But I didn't hunt growing up. My parents moved up from Colorado when I was five, and they're used to whitetail hunting. And you know, Dad shot a, a blacktail in the bottom of this clear cut, and he. <laughs> He, after packing it up and out of there, he said, never again, like all that work for this much. And, uh, I, I loved fishing though. I remember riding my bike to, uh, to the river, um, coming back with salmon on the handlebars. Just, I just fished as much as possible. So, um, but just a huge part of my life and now coming full circle again, same thing with the, with the writing, uh, went to college for journalism and then I was like writing sports, but yeah, just getting back to that to that youth and that being outside and that, that fishing and all that stuff and being able to write about it is just so much fun and communicating that. And it seems like there's, I don't know what, I don't want to say responsibility, but articulating it in a way that's going to be maybe helpful for people and getting people encouraged and maybe getting over that, uh, that barrier of entry that's self-imposed and think, Hey, I want to do this too. I want to get back to that. Or I have these memories of hunting with my dad or uncle or mom. And, and I kind of want to try it too and, and rekindle that. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. I'm happy to hear that you've had that same experience because I think that is something that we haven't acknowledged as a community that much that there are we the terminology and the sort of mechanics of what we do and the very specific gear all can be really intimidating to people. Um, even people who are sort of um, sort of coming along with small bits and pieces of it, uh, but again, especially men don't want to don't want to acknowledge what they don't know. I think actually this is one reason that women are so much um, 
easier to bring into our our fold, especially when they're being taught by other women, is they're just much more receptive to knowledge. Mm -hmm. My my wife got her PhD at the University of Wyoming. So while she was working on it, um, she she had an elk tag and she was going out by herself. And I was like, well, what are you going to do if you get one? She said, well, I'll figure it out. I'm thinking, oh man, you know, figuring out with an elk and I'm intimidated by an elk and, but she's just a go-getter. And it was just that, that I'll figure it out. I'm, I'll ask the questions if, if need be. But, uh, so she went out she, she sat in the spot where he put up some game cameras and she did a couple of cow calls and then she took out her Kindle and started reading and a big old bull comes in, but, uh, she wasn't able to get a shot, but I just thought, man, that's, I can't imagine many, many men necessarily doing that. You see a lot of people who they kind of put themselves out there on these forums and say, Hey, you know, I'm going to my first ever caribou hunt in Alaska you know, what do I need to know? You know, can I, can I, what caliber should I use? And a lot of times they get roasted because you have yeah. people who are the, who are the experts who say, Oh, you know, just stay home. There's no caribou here. Same thing with, you know, people are very protective of, of their hunting, their, their backyard and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I think when people seek out different people and, and maybe send DMS or emails or something like that, but it's, it's less public, but still, I think it's difficult for people to, that are curious about it to, to go forward with it and find a, a, a mentor. I think this is actually one of the bigger unresolved issues about mentoring in general is, is state agencies and NGOs who are, um, who are interested and have sort of a mission built around mentoring immediately want to go to like, how do we scale this? How do we make it like um, a massive movement? And I think, I think that, um, kind of denies some of the organic nature of that what you're talking about is like it is definitely a relationship it's a one-on-one sort of relationship built around trust and common experiences and boy that's a hard thing to scale up um you know it's like it's one unit at a time um one thing i think we don't do a very good job of though uh as a community is of mentors is when we do mentor somebody we don't make it very explicit that now your job is to go and mentor somebody else. Cause that is a way to scale it up. Instead, we just sort of say, well, I hope you have a good time. I'm here if you ever need me again, yeah. but we don't kind of make it a sales pitch that has like the ask at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, that, um, people are being influenced and finding that they can make money in the space. And it's, a, there's a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities and, that sometimes lead to content being made that's not necessarily, it might not put us in the best of light. And I think we're creating a lot of content that could be used against us too. And I think part of that is there's not really a mentorship program for what we're going to do with the content. And so if you're just going out and you're hunting and it's, you keep it to yourself, you want to post on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, I think that's fine. But in the content realm, I think that's kind of where interesting thing happens too. It's a matter of going on as many hunts as possible, killing as many things as possible and that's the end goal is to be sponsored, be rich, make my living through this hobby. When I think there are some people out there who are incredibly responsible, um, they, they value conservation and in their storytelling, that's just a part of it that you can't, you can't be separated. And that's not pressed upon, or impressed upon all people who are making content. It's just content for content, for eyeballs, for growth, for, you know, me as a brand, uh, on YouTube, like that's, that sort of thing. And it's, how, how do you think we mentor people in that, in that 
uh, in that frame, not just the hunting part, but the uh, communicating and the in the the YouTube making and all that stuff. How do we how do we do that? Yeah, that's how much time do we have? <laughs> but total <laughs> theoretical here. I, I I think about it a lot too because I, I I wonder sometimes when. I obviously want to write a column or a story that's going to have a good ending, right? I, I, I hate writing the column that's, you know, oh, but, you know, it was just nice to get out there. And um, I loved reading Bill Heavey and Patrick McManus, and it was just fun because they were clearly very competent, but they were humorists, and it was it was funny to read that they were just they were ordinary. And it might be uh, successful, but maybe not, but they were so good at storytelling um, and that it was just, it was funny, and it was great. But now that almost seems like it's a, a diss, you know, if, if you're not successful, then you're not qualified to have the followers. And I think you're onto something there. I mean, the thing that made them so universal is they were self-effacing, you know, and they could make fun of their, their own sort of uh, shortcomings, even though, and having hunted a few times with Bill Heavey, he has a lot of shortcomings, <laughs> but he was never afraid of like poking fun at himself or the experience or just sort of the, awkwardness of of not knowing and you're so right like we are afraid now to uh admit when we don't know something i think that's a problem because we're not very accessible that way either you know uh there's this intimidation level of somebody who's reading our stuff or community or engaging with our content there's like whoa i can never be like that person um but i also think we don't do a very good job of of like making a hunting story about more than just the hunt. Like in that rush to sort of create content, it's all, it's pretty superficial and it's really like, it's pretty temporary. It's not very timeless. I don't, it doesn't really hold up, you know, over time or, or uh, broader experiences. And that's what I think we are missing. We're missing sort of that resonant, um, universal, uh, accessibility of our content which i think this is going to be a little bit of a of a uh, tangent but I, i'll try to bring it back home if i can <laughs> no, it's, I, think it's, best, I think the best content that we can do and the best like representative representation of what we are is content that reminds people that we are like unique that what what we do with hunting and fishing and, and our public land legacies and this is like Americana. This is a folk art that we are in danger of losing, just like we're in danger of losing like homemade quilting and pie making and like, you know, canning all of the things incidentally that we rediscovered during the pandemic. Um, But I think there's something about like that reconnection with rural America and the frontier ethic and, and sort of like colonial times as hard as they were. And as, you know, unwoke as they were and all of the other things like there was something real about that that really made us like gave us the american identity mm-hmm. and i think so many people in our space whether they're you know first generation americans or whether they're uh long-time americans there is a real thirst i think in america to, to find something that we have in common because there's so many things that we have are finding daily that we don't have in common yeah. and we're building walls around i think this is one thing that we really can mine as something that's a universal universal experience and content that can sort of confirm that and reconfirm that I think is worth reading and engaging in. Yeah. Every study says that we are lacking in community and we're lacking in purpose. And 
when you look back at, you know, people talking about, you know, the Midwest deer camp or whatever, and how it's impossible to articulate what it meant to them because it was deer camp and it was at their spot and it was, you know, maybe they got a deer, maybe they didn't, but it was just being part of a productive community of family, friends, mentors. And, you know, if you don't have that, if you're getting your community from the internet, like that's not a real community. That's the surface level. You're not getting value. You're not really contributing much except for hot takes or, you know, these phrases that you have memorized that you're inserting like Mad Libs. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so, it's so, so much value in it. Um, but people, as soon as you, you mentioned the old days, oh, when this was happening, well, that was happening. Yeah. And that's horrible. That's, you know, it's part of the history that's horrible too, but let's, let's look at the other parts of it too. And that's the, the value that people got from having a role in their community and being self-sufficient. I think the, uh, the hopeful thing about that is that so much of hunting and fishing happens in, in rural places, in places where that human community is, um, is accessible. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine that happening, you know, in in a, in a city pond with, I'm just trying to make stuff up now, you know, like an urban fishery. Yeah. I think it is possible to make those little communities, but I, you know, so much of, of, our national access is in places where it is possible to meet, meet people as people and not just sort of like demographic units. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just a matter of turning people from antagonistic toward hunting back to indifferent, you know, it's not a matter of necessarily recruiting urban people at Starbucks to join our cause and go hunting. Hey, I'll take you out on a caribou hunt and you'll change your mind. It just, Hey, I'm a person. This is something that I like to do. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I won't be antagonistic toward or vote for ballot measures that are going to prevent you from doing that. Um, I get it. And I see that. And I think that's a low goal, but it's a goal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as far as hunting and fishing, what do you have uh, planned? Are you, uh, you getting out? Are you uh, unwrapping the brain and uh, from, from all this, these stressful numbers and getting out to, to do some hunting? Uh, yes and no. I, uh, so and on a personal basis, I've been a cross-country and track coach uh, in my little town for a long time, which is actually, I'm going to say, uh, is pretty close to being a mentor in a lot of ways. You know, when it comes to like, so I was, I was a middle school cross-country coach for years. And one of the hardest things to do is to say, you know, to sixth graders, you just got to run a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mentioned that because I, I was like... Last year was going to be my last year. I just need my fallback. It's a hard thing to do to be committing to that because as a coach, you're also asking those kids to be committed to the program. And if the coach is now gone for weeks at a time hunting, it's hard to get the kids to kind of, you know, commit as well. So this was going to be my last year was going to be my last year. I've got an archery elk tag and a, and a bunch of states. I'm like, woohoo. And then I got sucked back into it. Yeah, so yeah, I agree yeah. for one last year to be the cross country coach. Um, and if, if that sounds like it's a hardship, it's not at all. It's like, <laughs> as, as you kind of know, dealing with dealing with kids and, and, and on a, on that, um, on that basis, as a coach or a teacher is worth every minute you do. But because of that, I got an archery elk hunt and I'm hoping the hell I've got time to get away. It's actually the misery breaks. I live in Eastern Montana. Nice. So I was very close to home. Um, I do a lot of upland bird hunting. So once, once September 1st, it's our prairie grouse season that will, um, 
I'll be getting out early in the morning so I can get back to go to cross country practice. <laughs> yeah, there's there's Make no there's no good time to stop coaching. I, I I coached basketball for 13 years, and when I was up here, it, we have to travel by by jet, Alaska Airlines, because Southeast Alaska is all a bunch of islands. So you know you're gone from school on Friday, then you get back on Sunday, so you have pretty much no weekends during the season. But you have these kids who've been in the program for three years, and it's like, man, I. Am I gonna stop right now? It's 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 her senior year now, and oh man, it's it's there's always uh, there's always kids that are out there that are gonna make it worth it. But at some point, it's just you walk away and you say it's gonna be fine. Someone else is gonna fill in, but yeah. Well, the hard thing is, it's like it's a it's a it's a renewable resource. There's always the next kid or the next cohort of kids that come through. And like, all right, I'm gonna see them all the way through, and then oh, here's another bunch. So. Yeah, I definitely got caught up into that for all the right reasons. But this, I'm going to say it here, this is my last year of coaching. <laughs> it's official, yeah. Um, but I will go, I'm going to go to Kentucky for a whitetail hunt. I will go to Colorado for elk hunt. So I'm going to definitely get out a little bit, but um, I'm going to push it off till our state meet, I think it's the 21st of October. When that's done, you let her rip. Yeah. What um, Have you ever been up to Alaska to hunt fish? Sure I you have. have. Yeah. Um, mostly caribou, um, okay. fishing quite a bit, uh, out of Kodiak, uh, Prince of Wales for a black bear hunt yeah. a long time ago. Excellent. How long yeah, ago, long ago was that? Oh, good night. Probably 20 years ago, okay. 18 or 20 years ago, long time. Okay. Yeah. I remember, um, I don't know. I, I graduated in 99 and so like it was starting to get, you started to see more, uh, hunters coming up and a couple more outfitters, but growing up there, it was just summer fishing and that was about it but uh, it kind of became a, a hotbed for 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 hunting and fishing and it's it's really cool to see people be able to come up and you know make their dreams come true you know and because you can be really defensive about your home ground but then if you go to another state or go to a different area you're the exact type of person you hope doesn't show up at your own place and you think oh okay it's it's totally different now i'm that person in wyoming okay so let's let's be a little bit more gracious of a of a host and then also as a as a guest being a visitor thinking okay it's all public land i i have the right to be here but let's also remember that someone else has been e-scouting this and walking around and knows this and this is their their home court oh i think that that sort of self-reflectivity is a is something we've kind of have lost i see it too i mean um i live in the epicenter of you know public land mule deer public land antelope public land bird hunting and and it's just so easy to get just hot under the collar you see just all of these non-resident plates come through and just all these sort of gawkers and then and then also people who are like really getting it done at a high level like wait where did this population of people come from um but i think it is really healthy to put yourself back in the situation when i go hunt elsewhere and i get those sort of looks at the grocery store of like what are you doing here <laughs> I will observe this one thing though, and this is a, if I sound like a cranky old man, then uh, so be it. But this was certainly a, a, an artifact of the pandemic. I would see all of these overlanders come through with, you know, in these vehicles who were, that were just built around the idea of I'm going to conquer your landscape. Mm -hmm. And there are a few, fewer off-putting things to a local to see somebody roll into your place with the idea that they're just going to conquer your own landscape. I've, I've often said to people, like when I have a chance to actually talk them through this, like I can see why you might be having trouble getting access because you are, 
you know, conquering Lord who's come through. The best probably way to get access is to come in, come in like a, a Subaru or a Toyota Tercel or <laughs> yeah. something like that yeah. <laughs> with a little more modesty. Uh-huh. I've seen so many more trucks pulling boats, like bonafide fishing boats, 24, 26 foot uh, hard top boats going to Prince of Wales, which is pretty crazy because just the sheer expense, the the drive up there and then putting it on the ferry. But, you know, they have their little spot and they're either renting a spot or they they bought some land and they come up here to conquer. There's no more of that little, uh, you know, go to a lodge or anything like that. They're going up there for, for weeks, if not months, and they're doing the thing and kind of tip the cap to them a little bit for getting after it on that level. But, um, yeah, there's the, you got California plates, you have Oregon plates or something like that. Then that's, uh, <laughs> you can just sense the, uh, the locals ready to, to slash some tires, but <laughs> it's good to be tolerant. Uh, I think though, this is something that, that kind of go back to the survey a little bit is we, um, you know, we did see the the bump in participation in the pandemic for sure. We saw it in license sales. We saw it in just sort of just activity, however you want to measure it. But what I've seen since then, um, and at the tail end of that too, is is kind of what you're discussing is people who are are self defining themselves or defining themselves as you know hunters and fishers. This is my identity are doing it at a much more intensive, longer level, um, intentional level than I've ever seen before. I think there are fewer of us, but we have in a lot of ways a much bigger impact on the landscape. I mean, we're seeing people who will stay here for, you know, on BLM, there's a 14 day camping permit. They'll stay for 14 days, move across the road for the next 14 days. And, yeah. and they just stay. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting having conversations with people about that and that why why they why they think that and what the reasoning is behind it and a lot of times you think yeah that's that makes a lot of sense that's uh you're you're doing your camp thing and yeah it's it's fun to talk to people and get kind of that background but it is it is interesting and I'd be interested to see if some of the old uh, hunters and anglers from you know eighties seventies if what they would think of the the modern hunter what do you think the some of the some of the old icons in hunting would think of the the modern hunter? Oh, I I think there's it's a mixed bag in one sense. Just like you said, yeah, look at these guys getting after it and they're doing it on their own terms. Like that's a hell yeah, that's that's a hard thing to be. Um, you know, to have, to be derogatory about. On the other hand, I wonder, and this kind of goes back a little bit to this sort of philosopher um, phase, I guess you might say, is like people who are doing that are, they're pretty selfish. They're selfish of their time. They're selfish of their opportunity. They're not giving away a lot of their um, hard won knowledge. Um because they have made it all about the intensity of the experience. That's a hard thing to share. And I, I would observe, I think that's a really intimidating thing for somebody who looks out across the landscape and sees that. And I think, do I want to do that? It's, you know, it's like the person who is just so rabid about whatever golf or open gym basketball, I'm like, Whoa, I, that guy's just a little, little too much. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm going to be interested in seeing is, is, um, how that personality type ages 
and whether that becomes a much more, you know, more a sort of a giving sort of person, giving of time and knowledge and experience and gear and all of that stuff. Cause I don't see that right now as a, as a, as a character um, a trait of that particular person. Yeah. I teach I adventure survival lit and um, we read uh, into thin air and talk about Beck Weathers and how he had, he talked about, a black cloud that followed him in his regular life. And the only time the black cloud went away was when he was climbing. And so that was just his way of, of trying to cope with that. But you know, it, you're not dealing with, with the problem. Like you're, you're trying to escape it. And that's, that's a difficult thing for people to do. And so if you're, if you have your 14 day hunt and that's, that's it, like that, that's your time. The vast majority of your year is spent in reality or in your real life. Like, the overwhelming amount of it is, is misery or is it dark cloud? And I don't think those 10 days, those 14 days can fix the problems or totally renew you. Um, so if we expect that they're going to, I think we're putting ourselves in a difficult situation. I think though that that 14 days that you're sort of living your best life is, um, is also a product of, the rest of however many weeks that would be 50 weeks of planning for it and preparing for it. And so you put a disproportionate sort of like importance on that time that you have, that you've thought about the whole rest of the time. And I think that helps define a little bit of why people are so driven and so like intent on milking out sort of every bit of that opportunity when they are out there. Yeah. Cause they've thought about it for so long and, and, our whole community enables that, like thinking about it, right? Yeah, for you sure. can remote scout. You can like spend all of the time you're not in the field getting content and thinking about gear and and advice. Um, so when you are out there, it's you're driven and focused. Yeah, I, I think if you if you do all that off season stuff for hunting and excited about it, but not at the expense of the other people that you have. You know, talk about the importance that as a mentor and a cross country coach. Like you're there, there's more to there's, there's three dimensional character who also happens to hunt. And I think that asking a hunt to be something more than it can be. If you're, if you're a good person and you have fun and you're enjoying life, the hunt's going to be even better. Like the more put together you are, the better things are outside of hunting, the better the hunt's going to be too. So uh, it's kind of that balance. And I think some people can get the wrong idea if, um, you know, I call myself a hunter. That's all I am. That's, that's what I do. Like, well, are you a good dad? Are you a mentor? Are you, you know, how are you, what would the people around you say that you're a happy person? Are you a hardworking person? Or are you just kind of counting down until the next uh, time that you can go hunt and you're miserable otherwise? Yeah. Well, and that, I don't pretend that that's, we're seeing some of that in this survey, but I think we might be a little bit is like, um, when you look at some of the reasons for disapproval uh, of hunting, it's all about the personal experience. It's all about like what appears to be a selfish uh, attainment of something, whether it's meat for myself, experience that will benefit me personally. There aren't sort of the social, the broader social um, benefits from that perspective. And I think, I think, the people who are not hunting and fishing are seeing that among this sort of new breed of, of hunter. It's a very selfish activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Share some meat. One of the things I like about campaigns, he talked about when he would show up to work, he would always bring elk in. So people that he worked with were getting the elk too. And so they might not want to hunt themselves, but just that idea of 
this is what it's about and I'm not going to keep everything to myself. Here's how I'm going to share it. I think that's, that's a cool thing that you can, that you can do. Yeah. Well, uh, closing thoughts. What do you got? Uh, hunting, fishing, surveys, writing. What do you got? Well, writing. Um, I do think when you talk about kind of that golden age of, of outdoor writing and even like beyond casting even farther back than McManus and Heavey and, think about Gene Hill and like some of these people whose writing is like really simple and accessible. It's not about the hunt. It's about something larger than the hunt. And that's what, that's what then is like, is the the takeaway. It's like something about, you know, recognition of your own mortality or your aging or seeing your kids do something that you never thought that they could. I, I miss that. And so when I think about like my writing ahead, that's what I really do. Even if it's like pretty obviously about, a personal experience in a hunt at outdoor life, we would call these come along adventures. Um, you know, come along. I want to transport you through my words and the, and the imagery. It should be about more than just that hunt. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm still, I'm still learning my way around this world. <laughs> um, but that's what I hope even my, just going out with my dog at the, after, after cross country practice is more than just that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for all the work. Uh, big fan of Outdoor Life and, and Field and Stream and, and all those uh, those magazines that kind of introduced me to to the hunting. Like I said, I didn't uh, grow up hunting. I knew some stuff uh, from my dad, learned some stuff from dad, but a lot of it became, you know, I learned how to write and I learned how to write about hunting and a lot about hunting, you know, from those from these iconic magazines that have been around for a long time. So I really appreciate all you've done and appreciate uh, your time. Well, thank you. This was a good conversation and uh, let's go hunting together sometime. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go back to Prince of Wales. I'll show you the spots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks.